This is an ABC podcast. If you grew up with a family pet, the chances are you've got memories of walking with your dog or cuddling a cat. But for Dr Christina Zdenek, her childhood wasn't spent with a Labrador or a kitten or even a budgie or goldfish. Christina grew up with Bowie, the two-metre-long boa constrictor that was her family pet in Los Angeles. Bowie was the first snake that Christina fell in love with, but she wasn't the last. Christina became a biologist and eventually swapped the concrete jungle of LA for the greens, golds and vivid blues of Queensland. She spent the last 13 years immersed in Australian wildlife, trapping death adders on Magnetic Island and recording Palm Island cockatoos beat out drum rhythms. Christina now runs the Venom Evolution Lab at the University of Queensland, where she handles some of the country's most venomous snakes and spiders. And for Christina, this venom is a kind of untapped magic that has enormous potential to benefit us humans. Hi, Christina. Hello. Tell me about Bowie. What did she look like, your first pet? Bowie was beautiful. It was this huge boa constrictor, red-tailed boa constrictor, about two metres long, weighed up to 15 kilograms or something like that, had a huge girth. And, and I was just a little girl. And my mum always thought that it might escape and, and strangle me, which it didn't. Well, it did escape, but it didn't strangle me. So if your mum had this fear, which I must say I would share with her, whose yeah. idea was it to bring a um, 15 kilo boa constrictor into the family home? That was my dad. He had this sense of adventure and it was wonderful. He got it for my two older brothers. And so just being being in the house, so I ended up, you know, even raising some rats to feed to it, which you shouldn't do. I've learned since then. But yeah, they should be like pre-killed dod rat sort of thing. Better for the rat and better for the snake. But yeah, I would, was able to just watch this snake intimately. Like you don't get this opportunity out in the bush and particularly growing up in a city and, you know, around the world, urbanization, you know, is so intense that I think it's a fantastic opportunity to be able to observe an animal and their behaviours, especially one that's so different to humans. Where did Bowie live in your home? He initially lived in my brother's room in a an enclosure that had uh, just a glass front and sides and that. But after he escaped a few times, my mother became extremely worried about that. She said, that's it. It's got to go outside. So it moved to the garage thereafter. And when it escaped inside the house, where would you end up finding Bowie? What kind of places did that boa constrictor like to end up in? It it liked going behind my brother's bed. And it was just this little, small, little place. And they just want to hide. You know, they're scared. They're vulnerable. You know, they like dark sort of hidden places. And yeah, she kept finding him there each time. So it became easier to find him. The first time though, she was scouring the house. Yeah. In, in great fear. <laughs> so as you say, you're growing up in LA, there's not many chances to encounter wildlife. What kind of access did you have to nature as a kid? It was limited and I was grateful to be able to keep reptiles as pets there was this one little block of just unbuilt land that was a few blocks away. My dad, he called it Little Africa. <laughs> and us kids, we, we all thought it was like actually Africa. And my brother, in a conversation once, when somebody's talking about Africa, he's like, oh, I've been there. They're like, oh, really? You're only like 10 years old. And he's like, oh, no, Africa's great. But <laughs> not was, so many elephants, but, you yeah, know, it was not it, there were there were little, you know, lizards and sometimes we'd find snakes and we just spend all day there. And I, I, it saddens me to think of kids these days, you know, where any nearby open block is, you know, enclosed with a fence because of litigation and insurance. And so they don't have those opportunities. And, you know, it's like the soul nostalgia, you know, if I ever go back home and I see that it's, that's actually been built on. So that little creek that we used to go to, it's no longer there and all those lizards, you know, they wouldn't be there either. But it was especially important to be able to to keep reptiles as pets. And in fact, I got chameleons, you know, there's like African lizards that have eyes that wander and a prehensile tail. And I used money that I had saved up for a couple of years. They're really expensive. But I was like, I want a chameleon. And my dad and I built their enclosure. We got one. And I thought to myself, hmm, why why don't we get another one because they're so expensive Then we can breed them and then sell the babies. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what I did. As an 11 year old, I was breeding veiled chameleons was the species. 
And you know, anytime I had a party, kids coming over, I'd be like, come here, let me show you. This chameleon will eat this cricket off my finger with its big, long tongue projection that comes hurling out. And they just loved it. It, it was very cool to be able to share. <laughs> so that's what I was doing at my kid party. So your dad really encouraged this, did he? Was he someone who supported these schemes of yours as a young kid? He did, yeah. And hats off to my mother too for, for tolerating it and, and letting me keep all these different animals. And she, in fact, you know, thanks to mum for going and getting the crickets all the time. Obviously, I couldn't drive. I was just this little girl. And she would often be stuck getting crickets every week so that I could feed my chameleons. And would she get the crickets from a pet store? Yes, it was called exotic life. And exotic pets are a really big thing in, in America. And so it was fortunate that one was like 20 minutes from our house and you could just buy them. And especially when we had, you know, the baby chameleons after they hatched out of the eggs, it was like 25 of them all at once. And picture like half the length of your pinky finger. And there's these little, small little things and they're little grabby hands. It, they're just the most adorable thing. I would just sit there watching them for hours. And you had to feed them little pinhead crickets. And they don't last that long, so you have to go even more frequently. So it became intense. But I did make a fair amount of money back. I was going to say, yeah, it, was it really wasn't helpful. as financial success. It was. <laughs> so was it always a given, Christina, that you would make your, your life, your profession in wildlife somehow? I... I did feel this like strong, intense urge for that to be the case. I didn't know whether, you know, what sort of jobs existed. I didn't know anybody who was in the wildlife industry at all. My siblings weren't into it at all. Parents weren't. My dad was an eye surgeon, so I was quite far from, from wildlife, of course. My dad said, turn your passion into a profession and you'll never work a day in your life. And I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Um you know, there was other influences of like, oh, I've got pretty good marks in school, so maybe be a doctor and a lawyer. And, you know, you sort of hear these influences and you have lots of money. But I was just totally obsessed with wildlife and I just ran with it. And, you know, it did mean that I was poor for a long time. And but if I, you know, I was able to have these experiences and if I could just barely scrape by, I was still incredibly happy. And I would just seek out any sort of opportunity I could to interact with a, a range of different types of wildlife. It wasn't reptiles that first brought you from the United States to far north Queensland, though. What were you studying in Cape York? That was the palm cockatoo. So it's Australia's largest cockatoo. It's fully black in colour except for a bare red cheek patch. They've got this huge bill and this giant erect crest and they only, within Australia, live on the tip of far north Queensland, Cape York Peninsula, and this incredibly special place. And I applied for what's called the Fulbright Fellowship. And in 2008, I was one of eight US citizens to win that award uh, to come to Australia. It's such a remote part of Australia. What did it look like to your eyes arriving from LA? What, what did you feel oh, entering yeah. Cape York? Chalk and cheese, that's for sure. And, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to get out of LA and all the traffic and all the billboards and lights and all the people. And it, it was just what the doctor ordered. I, I loved it. It was this vast landscape of all these different habitat types and ecotones an incredible diversity of species. It's like a touch of New Guinea in Australia because of that land bridge connection that used to, you know, be connected to New Guinea. And, you know, not just the bird diversity there, but the butterfly diversity and the reptile diversity. And it was just like a biologist's haven. <laughs> you know, nature there really does still rule. And it's it's an incredible place to, to really feel that. And it, interestingly, it brings the people together even though you have these like really small communities, we're talking like 400 people, you know, the place that I was at was called Lockhart River, beautiful community with, you know, the indigenous groups there and being able to, to interact and learn from cultures and this, you know, knowledge exchange. And um, yeah, it brings people together being remote. What was your accommodation like in Cape York? Oh, yes, yeah, basic, really basic. I'm talking like not four walls, but two walls and... So the wildlife would just come in. I remember a brown tree snake sort of just slithering in the, the rafters one day. And I thought, you beauty, I don't even have to go herping and searching for it. They come to me. And in fact, it bred, well, laid its eggs inside 
it was like an, an old can or something. There was like a little bit of a museum that I set up for any guests that came. Very small, like little shelf. And it laid some eggs in there. And then I saw these like baby snakes. I was like, ooh. <laughs> and yeah, the, like bats would fly through at night. And because it was open air, it meant that you're just like part of the environment all the time. And, you know, the wind blows in, the rain like there was only a couple meters at the back of the shed that wouldn't get rain. And so it had everything stacked at the back. And so there was no power. I had to just drive my vehicle up. I had a dual battery system. And any time I needed to enter data into my laptop, I would have to connect it to an inverter and then connect that to the car battery. What did you eat? Oh, what did you cook for yourself? It, it was very basic. So I needed to make my small scholarship last two years. So it was 24 grand. So I lived off 12 and a half grand for one year and then did it again the next year because I needed more data. And I was only able to do that because I was living very cheaply, didn't have to pay rent because I was basically camping a little bit like glamping because I wasn't on the ground, but I was basically eating canned baked beans on toast and maybe an egg. And it, it was definitely basic, you know, the pasta, my husband always laughs at this because he can't believe it but I was so like desperate for the food that I was getting and needed to make every calorie last and so after I would cook pasta rather than putting all that starch down the drain I would drink the pasta water oh, for extra Christina. calories <laughs> it didn't taste nice I'll tell you that commitment to commitment <laughs> to nature <laughs> tell me more about the palm cockatoos that you were studying. What do you discover about the way these birds communicate, how they speak or sing to one another? Yeah, so I spent two years learning about their their language, I guess you can call it. So unlike most parrots and cockatoos around the world that might have between five and 15 different call types, I found that palm cockatoos have this really varied and complex vocal repertoire of up to 27 or 29, if you consider the juveniles, vocalizations. And then those syllables, those 27 syllables, they actually mix and match to make a more varied repertoire, kind of like a songbird. You which know, is if you so different from when I think about what a cockatoo sounds like in the city, a regular cockatoo, oh, which yeah. is so screechy and not Raucous. at all like a melody. Yes, yes. A very broad bandwidth, almost like white noise, really loud, like a sulfur-crested cockatoo, just like what you said. But a palm cockatoo actually has a melodious whistle and it goes like one of the calls. It's really nice. And they, they even have what's called the hello call. And please do the hello call. I, I will do that for you. It goes, it's very cool. And it looks very different on a spectrogram compared to all the other vocalizations. And you'd think like, oh, it's a nice greeting, yeah, because anthropocentric viewpoints of humans. But it, it actually is a... I don't like you, go away, <laughs> sort of F off. This is my territory. That's what the hello call is for the palm cockatoos. Very territorial. <laughs> and what are, their, what are their nests like, Christina, and how do they compare to other birds? Yeah, they're wholly unique. They, they nest in these ancient, over 300-year-old trees. And because they're such a huge bird, we're talking 65 centimetres in length, 1.2 kilograms in weight, Rather than like a rainbow lorikeet needing a small hollow, you can picture they need this huge hollow. And I climbed 20 different of their trees and found that the diameter was actually 26 centimeters at the entrance. So they're so big that it's not a branch drop that then creates their hollow, but literally they have to do it in the trunk of the tree is where their hollow is. And so it's typically a cyclone that will have snapped off the top of the tree and then over this long decades of termite activity and fungus and bacteria and, and erosion, in the end, it's this big, long process, but their hollows face the sky and it's in this vertically piped tree and they need to actually stack hundreds of sticks into the nest. And so that's very different than any parrot and cockatoo in the world in terms of actually building a stick nest inside a hollow. They're the only species to do it. So they're absolutely obsessed with sticks. And are they just collecting what sticks that have fallen off on the ground? No, no. They are very reluctant to go to the ground. They only do that occasionally for drinking. Rather, they'll go to a nearby tree. And with this huge, big bill, the bottom is like a shovel. It's got a wide base to it. And they work their way through a living branch. <laughs> 
and they snip off the end so the leaves fall to the ground and then they work their way back, say, like 20 centimetres and then, say, make another snip. And it takes maybe four minutes or so for them to make their own stick out of a branch in a nearby tree. And they, they managed to not drop it as well. So they actually saw off the, the sticks they want with their bills to put in, this, to put in the nest yes. that they're making. Yep, they make their own sticks. And when you climb up to peer in down these hollow trunks of trees to look at the nest, how do the palm cockatoos react to Dr Zdenek? Oh, yes. Well, I'm glad to say for the bird and for me that we never actually encountered each other. Yeah, I mean, they could really uh, chew through your thumb if given the the time. But instead, I would make sure to climb in the middle of the day when the birds weren't there prior to them nesting. There's something that palm cockatoos do that no other animal on the planet, I guess, apart from us, from humans do. What's that? That's their wholly unique behaviour of drumming. And what they do is one of these sticks that we just described, so rather than just dropping it into the nest hollow to make that that nest platform, they'll then grab it with their foot out of their bill, that stick that they've fashioned and made themselves, and start banging it on the branch of the tree, and it makes this really loud drumming noise. And they don't get any food reward out of this tool use, and instead it's just a social context, and they have an audience, it's typically the female... But, you know, they often do it in a territorial defence context too because you picture these ancient trees becoming more and more rare in the landscape for various reasons. But they will absolutely defend them vehemently. And so part of that is if they can show their strength, I think, in that they've snipped off maybe not a living branch but actually a dead hardwood, you know, branch that is incredibly hard and loud as soon as they make that drumming noise. So they're using tools for, they're using instruments, basically. They're using, they're using yes. tools to make music. And do they vary from male palm cockatoo to male palm cockatoo? Like, do they have different styles? Like, have we got Ringo and Phil Collins of oh, the palm yeah. cockatoo world? <laughs> so definitely. You're spot on there. It, it took me four years of, of field seasons to, to work this out. And I finally managed to collect, I think it was over 60 different drumming events on video and the audio recording there too. And through a lot of analysis and help from different statisticians, we worked out that males are definitely drumming rhythmically. So that was beyond chance. They were, they absolutely kept a rhythm. So that's wholly unique as well, you know, in the animal kingdom, make a tool to make rhythm. But we also found that different males have different drumming styles. And we had something like uh, 12 or 15 males that we were able to record over time and found that each each one of them statistically had a, a different drumming style. And so maybe it's that when they're drumming, if a bird can only, you know, hear them, then like a vocalization of like a vocal signature, they are able to identify and know, okay, that neighbor is defending his territory. I know we're not meant to be anthropomorphic, but it's really hard not to. When you see these palm cockatoos with this amazing, you know, the crest on the the top of their head erect and they're putting their faces to one side and they're beating out a rhythm, like it really feels like you're in some great jazz club watching some amazing drama. I feel you. I I know. I I get that same sense. And and really when observing them and and videoing them and watching the videos later and stuff, it's... It's difficult not to agree and and say, no, there's definite emotion going on in that bird's brain. And we know that, you know, cockatoos around the world, they are incredibly intelligent, sort of like on par if you do these like cognition tests about like a five to seven year old in, in terms of their cognitive abilities. And, you know, the amount of dense neurons in their brain is pretty unmatched in, in the animal world. Given how intelligent parrots, cockatoos are, have there been much studies done into Australian parrots and, and their intelligence? So there hadn't before my colleagues and I started what we called the Cockatoo Cognition Project, hashtag cocky cognition. <laughs> and, and we went around to, I think it ended up being five different zoos and sanctuaries around the east coast of Australia oh, and Adelaide as well. And, and, and we arranged to work with whether it be all sorts of different species, you know, black cockatoos, sulfur-crested, um, eclectus parrots, 
and and we tested we put these parrots we enriched them with these different puzzles that they had a chance to solve like what kind of puzzle like a jigsaw what what do we what's the puzzle for a parrot a puzzle for a parrot is you put a treat in the middle, for instance, of this, what's called a multi-methods box, and you have different ways that they can enter into the box and to retrieve that that tasty treat in the middle. And so you have, you can poke a stick in there, so you need to use a tool and you can poke it off a little stand, or you can drop a ball that goes in and knocks it off the stand, or you can open up a little door and then go in, or you can pull a string that's attached to this this tasty treat in the middle. And so, yeah, we put these birds through this, you know, this test and and a few other ones as well. Like another one was we had this clear perspex barrier and then we put the treat behind the barrier and they needed to avoid pecking at that perspex. And that was the shortest, you know, distance that they could go. And, And then as soon as they pecked once, they should know, okay, I should walk around but some couldn't help themselves <laughs> and they would just start pecking, pecking, pecking. But the extra smart ones would be like, oh, there's something here. Let me walk around. And so it's, it's, it's an inhibition sort of test. Were you surprised by the kind of things that you saw parrots, cockatoos do with those tests? Yes, I was. And, and just their personalities, all of them so different. And yeah, them trying to work out, you can you almost see them thinking through and they're just looking and some were real had really good inhibition rather than keep trying to peck and force their way and they would just walk around and look and think and and we even actually tested a, a palm cockatoo or well, a couple of palm cockatoos we had great access there and how did they do well, it's really funny because, you know, they've got this drumming behaviour. <laughs> I'm getting the report card from my favourite child. Please don't tell me the palm cockatoo failed the Perspex test. Oh, no, no. He did something <laughs> totally outlandish and, and blew our minds. So the inhibition test, it was interesting because this bird didn't actually care about the treats. It was the only bird that we found that wasn't motivated by food. And instead, we had to put a novel object And this object had to be different every time. He just wanted this stimulation of like, oh, I want to play with something new. It it was like, wow. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and and one of these was like a spinny top and we put that behind. He goes and gets it and straight away grabs it with his foot and starts banging it on the ground like he wants to drum. (laughs) Well, he was. He was drumming. Oh, I thought, oh, you're just a gorgeous animal, aren't you? (laughs) It's so great. Christina, everyone loves birds, but yes. snakes, not so much. <laughs> Even while you were studying these amazing palm cockatoos and the clever cockies, was there a part of you that was just aching to, to get back to snakes? Absolutely. I had this deep desire, this underlying passion that I could never escape, and I didn't want to. And in fact, seasonally, after I did my you know cockatoo work, then on the off-season... I would join a traveling venomous snake demonstration company and I would get inside a snake pit and I would handle some of the world's most venomous snakes and demonstrate to the public, anyone who would listen, come to agricultural shows, shopping centers, whatever it may be. And and I was just teaching whoever would want to come and listen. A venomous snake pit <laughs> is not the workplace that you could get me to sign up for. How many species of venomous snakes are there in Australia? 109. On land and sea? like Yeah, so that's land-based species, venomous snake, snake species. We've got about 32 sea snakes. And so actually over half of our land-based venomous snakes are venomous. So we've got this incredible diversity. It's in the family called Elapidae. And yet we've got like over a third of the world's elapid snakes. Um, so we're very lucky in Australia to have such great diversity. So of many these, venomous snakes. So many so venomous snakes. I guess that's partly opinion. why we have this reputation as this incredibly dangerous snake-filled planet, uh, part of the earth, that any time you step outside your house, you're likely to be attacked by a snake. Oh, yes, yes. You definitely hear this. And, yeah, Australia does have this global reputation of being a land full of danger. You know, crocodiles up in tropical waters, you know, these big spiders lurking in bathrooms and, of course, you know, venomous plants. But, you know, we share suburbs with some of the most venomous snakes on the planet. And, you know, the eastern brown snake could be in your backyard. And we need to, like, learn how to, like, behave around snakes. You know, these... 
animals, they're indigenous to Australia. They have been here for millions of years and they have honed a perfect niche in the environment and have even adapted to, you know, the human altered landscape. So we've lost a lot of different species from areas where, where humans are, but there's a couple that have maintained, you know, the ability to live amongst us. Why aren't there more snake bites, snake deaths, given how many venomous snakes there are in Australia then? The short answer is because snakes are cowards. They're absolutely terrified of humans. We're like a giant Tyrannosaurus Rex walking toward them. They don't have horns to defend themselves or claws, no arms, no legs, of course. And so they're just this incredibly vulnerable, you know, group of animals that just want to hide. And if something's coming toward them, they'll either stay really still to avoid detection, so it's going into crypsis, or they will try to bolt away from us. And it's really only the circumstance where somebody either accidentally stands on the snake or actually tries to kill the snake. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Christina, is all snake venom the same, basically, in just different different quantities? No, venom is is a very fascinating topic. So it's a secretion that's produced by the venom gland of these snakes from around the world, around 3,600 different snake species in the world. And if you look at venoms from different species, they can actually vary not just according to species, but even within a species, geographically, the venom can change and even what's called ontogenetically. So that's when the snake's a juvenile versus when it's an adult. And if you think about why venom's evolved, mostly to incapacitate prey, if the snake changes their prey based on a different habitat they're inhabiting with a different geographical area, or they eat different foods from when they're baby snake to when they're an adult snake, then it makes sense for that venom to have evolved to to change and vary according to those different scenarios. And do different venoms from various species work on, on bodies of prey differently, say work on a human body differently, depending on what kind of snake I'm bitten by? Absolutely. Venom, it's this complex cocktail and you have a range of different toxins within there, say something like 50 different types of proteins and peptides. And each of them will or possibly may have a a different biological target in the body. And so we broadly break them up into three categories of how they uh, affect the human body. So we've got neurotoxic, disrupting nerves, hematoxic, disrupting the blood, and cytotoxic, and that's like bursting or or harming cells. And so if you think about venom entering into the body, if it eventually gets to the bloodstream, it can effectively go anywhere where the blood goes. And so basically everywhere but the, the brain and the central nervous system. And the venom has targeted and evolved to target lots of different biological receptors and throughout the body. And with those three categories, do Australian snakes tend to fall under one of those or or are they spread across? Yeah, so typically our Australian snakes don't have much cytotoxicity. So that's good news in terms of us not having to have amputations as a result of snake bite. Now, in contrast, if you look at, say, Africa's most populous country, Nigeria, they average 2,400 amputations from snake bite every year. And so there's like permanent disability, major life-changing scenarios where in Australia, we only have, uh, it's unfortunate, we still have, but just two to three deaths and uh, yeah, very few amputations. There just might be one every few years and it might be a finger for instance. And those amputations are because you've been bitten by a snake where the venom affects a particular localised area of the body, of, of tissue or bone. Yeah, so that's local tissue damage. So if you think about rattlesnakes, that's very common for those types of snakes. A lot of spinning cobras have cytotoxicity as well. And so there'll be a lot of damage visually right at the bite site. And we're really fortunate in Australia, 
in that our, most of our snakes don't have that action, not just because we don't have the amputations, but also that allows us to actually have a first aid treatment that other countries don't have access to. And that's the compression immobilization bandage technique. And it's simply, you know, stretching a, an elastic bandage uh, over the top of the limb, working your way up the limb and, you know, then immobilize, stay still, don't go walking anywhere. And you can gain six to 12 hours of time frame before getting to hospital for the antivenom treatment. And you can do that because you're not then keeping those local cytotoxic tissue damaging uh, toxins at the bite site. You're just wanting to prevent those toxins from getting to the blood and becoming systemic and having those other damages like the neurotoxicity inside uh, hemotoxicity. Have you ever been bitten by a snake? Yes, I have. So one venomous snake bite and I was hoping to go my whole career despite lots of contact time with venomous snakes. You're in the wrong uh, career. I know, it's, it's sort bite. of like a, a bit inevitable when you have so much <laughs> contact time. Like, yeah, so I'm the primary carer for a collection of 32 reptiles at my house. And, you know, so 26 of them are snakes and 22 of which are highly venomous. You know, we're talking death adders, coast of Taipans, inland Taipan, tiger snake, red belly. Uh, in your and, house? Yes, yes, in our house, all individually housed according to uh, regulations and yeah, we have all permitted and everything. And, yeah, so we sometimes use them for venom extractions and sometimes need to you know, do care of parts of their head if they've got still like a scale over their eye and we have to remove that. And there was this scenario where I was working with a Jew guide and um, so it's Sudanaya affinis and it's the Eastern brown snake equivalent in Western Australia. They're most, most medically significant snake. And I was needing to pin the head of the snake, which is one of the most dangerous things beyond trying to kill the snake, uh, to do with a venomous snake. Why and, is that? Because you're just close to its fangs. Yeah, and, and the snake feels very vulnerable if you've, you know, had to push on its head and then you're restraining it from the head. So it's going to do everything it can to bite what's holding it. It thinks, oh my gosh, I'm about to be eaten. And so I needed to, to pin the head of the snake and it was at the end of the day, tight space. There were some bad angles, a few people in the room, and, and I shouldn't have persisted, but I did. And yeah, I copped one fang scrape of that jugite. And so within 30 seconds, uh, my husband had bandaged me up. He had put the snake away. He had to put the snake away first, actually. How and painful was it? Not at all. It was just like a thorn. If I'd scrape myself on a thorny bush. And that's because that species, it's mostly this hemotoxic venom. So affecting the blood. And so there's no local effects at all. And so it was just mentally what was going on. You know, I was studying at the time, I was literally studying the effects of that venom, uh, among other venomous snake species in Australia. And I was literally picturing exactly what it could be doing and, in and terms of my blood chemistry. What would it have been doing as that venom entered your bloodstream? Well, if, if it got there, then it would make a lot of different small clots, many, many thousands of small clots throughout the body, sort of different in prey. Um, but in the human body being so dilute, it makes all these sort of microclots. And what it does is it consumes all of your blood proteins, which means your blood then doesn't have the capacity to, to clot and repair any of the normal small little damages that, that happen all the time. If you think about all the capillaries throughout your entire body, there's lots of damage that happens just through normal day activity and the inability for your blood to be able to repair those damages, the small little bits of damage all over, means that you would then slowly bleed out internally and that can lead to multiple organ failure and what, perhaps cerebral hemorrhage. And What time, what kind of time frame might that happen in? Well, it, it's all a matter of what you do once you're bitten. So it's, it's largely in the control of the victim themselves. And so if that's why it's like so important for Australians living in Australia or even every tourist coming through to know what to do in case you're bitten by a highly venomous snake. And it's so simple. You stay still and calm. You wrap. I know it's, stay it's calm. E easier to, <laughs> to say than do. You know, then you just wrap that limb with an elastic bandage up to the top, immobilize so that you're not going to make any muscle movement at all. And don't walk at all. 
And, and if you didn't know that, Get to hospital. if you did what I would instinctively do, which is run around screaming, flailing my arms, Ooh. what would be happening? How quickly would I have before this internal bleeding and oh, cerebral yeah. hemorrhage? Not long at all. And, and we know that from various cases of people doing the wrong thing, effectively, if you go running around after you're bitten, you're doing the absolute wrong thing and you're literally pumping that venom throughout your body and it being able to get to every single site to do all the damage. And so it increases your heart rate and then your blood flows more rapidly and through compression of the muscles. So it's initially in the lymphatic system in your limb, but as soon as it gets to your lymph nodes, then it can enter into the blood. And so you running around, you're speeding up that process and then it can do that damage. And in fact, a few years ago, there was a man up in Townsville who was like, oh, it's a tree snake. And he's just grabbed this snake from front lawn or something. And it had bitten him a few times and he like walks over to his neighbor's place and he's like, oh, what, what do you reckon this is, mate? And uh, it was a brown snake. And within a half hour, that man passed out. And, you know, a brown snake can kill an, an adult human. There's cases where in, in under an hour. But it's all when the person has done the wrong thing. Look, so on it, behalf of snakes everywhere, Dr. Christine Zdenek yeah. says it's okay, just do the right thing. So yeah. back to your experience where you knew what to do and your husband bandaged you up, but of course your scientist brain is running through scenarios. Yes. What happened then? We drove ourselves to hospital. I was driven to hospital. And so within eight minutes of the bite, we were at the local hospital. And what did they do to you? They were very shocked initially to hear that there was a, you know, a brown snake bite. So they put me in a wheelchair, which is very good. And, and they rolled me to the back and laid me down and hooked me up to um, the heart monitor so that they can monitor that and started doing different tests to see if I had symptoms already. And then they started to do a snake venom detection kit to see whether I actually had been envenomated because, of course, sometimes there's dry bites. The snake chooses whether to envenomate or not. And venom is this very energetically expensive secretion that they don't want to waste. They're not trying to eat you. That's what it's intended for is prey. So it's only when they really mean it. If you like, you know, say trying to kill a snake, they're like, oh, I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it to you. Um, and, and this one felt like, you know, he was had needing to defend his life. So. But, yeah, fortunately, it was one thing scrape, and not to say that's not a life-threatening situation, but it meant that I had a very low venom dose. My heart rate ended up, well, they ended up transferring me in, um, in an ambulance. Uh, it was about 45 minutes to another bigger hospital where they did have anti-venom. And I was, I was telling all the medicos, in, well, there's two medicos in the back, all about snake venoms, and they said they had never learned so much in an ambulance ride ever. <laughs> I was like, this is exactly what's happening. And these are the case studies. And so we got to be watching out for this and that. And I, I effectively managed my own snake Best bite. Best episode of paramedic ever. So you are, are being transported. And what was happening to your heart rate? I'm not sure at that stage, but I know when I got to hospital and, and they set me up in, in a bed there, that my heart rate kept alerting, like they kept dropping and there was this emergency system that would start beeping and alert the nurse to come over or the doctor and and take a look at me. And it must have done that five or six times throughout the night that my heart rate kept kept dropping and dropping. And so my bloods were a bit out. I had to convince them to do more tests. I was like, the first test you did, it's very possible that the venom hadn't entered into the blood. And so it's like, do more mm. blood tests. And, you know, they wanted to take off the bandage uh, right when I got there. I was like, no, 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 you keep the bandage on. Like you need to, you know, not wait for symptoms to develop. You need to have anti-venom ready, you know, emergency room ready, um, intensive care unit um, set up. Anyway, yeah, my heart rate dropped to, I think it was 40 beats a minute, which is quite low. And they started to get worried and they're considering giving anti-venom. And they thought they were sort of weighing it up and thought, you're young and fit. You're sort of on the edge of needing it. Let's just see how you go. And why not just give it? I would want the antivenom. Oh yes, I oh, know. It's 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 hard to know because I didn't know what the the blood clotting tests were like. So I actually do a lot of blood clotting tests myself. So I would know what the figures if they told me them. But that wasn't disclosed to me. And I know what you mean. You know, if you if you need antivenom, absolutely, it should it should be administered. And if you need another dose, that should be administered and another. Um. So sometimes you can get anaphylaxis, something like a peanut allergy. 
But that's simply reversed by adrenaline in a hospital setting. So people always ask me, well, do you keep anti-venom at your house with all your venom snakes? No, you, you know, you need to be in a hospital setting because you might need that adrenaline. And also it's, it's a foreign protein, you know, it's these antibodies that were derived from hyperinimized horses in Australia. And the, that's what's injected into you, into your blood. And so it's this foreign protein. So if they can avoid giving it, they will. Have you had any lasting effects from that, Christina? Or how long did it take you to feel recovered? No, 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 no lasting effects physically. Mentally, I was definitely a little bit more weary for maybe about a month uh, in, in terms of handling snakes because I still had to look after all my snakes. And in, in fact, the very snake that bit me. <laughs> did you like, like pinch it? Yeah, did, <laughs> his name got became Mr. Naughty thereafter. <laughs> Naughty. It's very restrained, Mr. But, Naughty. <laughs> yeah, but there, there definitely can be permanent lasting damage and effects. And firsthand story, well... Yeah, I guess secondhand story I could tell is that my husband, through being bitten by several mulga snakes, he's lost his sense of smell and taste. And so that's a huge change to one's life. You know, we go out to dinner. It's all about texture for him. It's, <laughs> he can't smell the foods. You know, we have this beautiful, nice dinner. I was like, oh, you want to taste that? Oh, I can't, can't really taste it. It's okay. <laughs> you and your husband train people to handle snakes. How do you go about doing that? What's the, what's the most important thing for people to know when they're learning how to handle venomous snakes? Yeah, absolutely. It, a lot of people are wondering, they might be wondering why, why we do this. So we're called the Australian Reptile Academy. And we, we've set up this business because there's very rarely an opportunity for people to be able to learn how to safely interact with snakes, given an, a need to do so. And so for instance, snake catchers, they come and do our course and then they get experience thereafter and they, they get the accreditation and then they can go get the damage mitigation permit in order to become a snake catcher for the local area. Anyone want to keep venomous snakes or perhaps just remove them from their own big property if they come into the house. Um, and mining companies might need to, you know, uh, hire people like fauna spotter catchers that remove snakes and other wildlife from harm and that sort of thing. And so, of course... You know, a prominent theme in our one-day course is safety. And so we start off with that because we've got the duty of care. And we're actually the only course in Queensland, possibly Australia, we're not, we're not too sure, but definitely in Queensland that has been approved for contact handling. So actually being able to touch the snakes. And so toward the, the bum, toward, toward the tail of the snake, and then using hook. So it's all about, you know, we've got personal protective equipment, and the, the proper equipment. And depending on the length of the snake, you might use a different handling tactic. I know that you, when I've watched videos of you handling snakes, you're always wearing shoes, but you're not wearing gloves. Isn't that, aren't you missing out on a, a level of protective clothing by not wearing gloves? Whilst a glove would prevent that snake or the right type of glove might prevent the, the fangs from entering my skin, it disables you from being able to have that dexterous control, that feel of the snake and that control. Because the glove, it actually, the snake would just slip through and then you've lost control. So you need to have control of the situation and being able to, to handle the snake properly. So no, we don't wear gloves. When you're transporting snakes around the country, partly to, to introduce would-be snake handlers to them, how do you do that? How, how do you package them? Yeah, so they're, they're all individually bagged and, and then they have a, a plastic container with holes in them and it's all properly labelled and, you know, slightly different scenarios for venomous versus non-venomous. You know, I sort of just need to pretend like that, like there's a baby. I'm just constantly, you know, that's forefront of mine. Never have it in the sun or anything like that. It's always on me sort of thing. And um, we, we've got all the permits to do this, of course, you know, so an exhibitor's permit is what it's called. You can't just take your pet snake and just go around the streets being like, look at my pet snake. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we're like professionals, of course, doing this. Um, but yeah, I did what's called uh, flying scientists with Queensland's recent former chief scientist, uh, Professor Hugh Possingham. And we went to Emerald, so in Western Queensland, and um, to enrich the experience of, of the kids there at the various schools and in the town hall, I brought... Uh, a woma python, the same one I brought today. Her, her name is Netflix. And um, so she came on the plane and yeah, word gets around real quick. I don't know <laughs> I how, but they're all like, do you have the snakes here? What kind of snake is it? Oh my gosh. And they start freaking out. And 
I don't know. They somehow know it's me. Maybe it's the way I dress. I can't really hide it. But they seem to hone in and they come over and ask, is that your snake that you've got? And one time we brought, it was like 15 snakes or something. On a plane. On a plane, yeah. So sometimes we have to travel to do these venomous snake handling courses for, for mining companies. And yeah, this this one occasion, we had, I think it was four plane rides, you know, sort of round trip. And um, it was this big container and, um, you know, it's, it's got written venomous snakes all over it. <laughs> and so all the baggage carriers, the, yeah, it's all, it's all locked and properly, you know, looked after. But, um, yeah, word does spread word very does, quickly. I bet. You must know these snakes so intimately. I mean, living in the sp- same space as them, handling them regularly. How how closely aware of you of the of the day-to-day lives and experiences of the snakes in your care Christina yeah I I know them very well so each and every one of them has their own personality even within one species and even as in one litter we've got two death adders that are from the same litter so they give birth to, to live young and one of them is a very I call her a B word. (laughs) I won't say it on radio. Um, She hates being handled. She'll whip off the hook and open mouth. And and we're really aware of that. And her sister is just absolutely a gorgeous, beautiful snake. As long as she's not thinking you're feeding her, she's just absolutely adorable. So like comfortable around humans. And I do, I I go in and, and look at them and watch them and, you know, I'm the primary care. And if I'm working from home, I get to observe them a lot. And I, I feed them and I clean them. And and I I know, too, that once they poo, then I need to clean their enclosures. And so I'm quite aware of, of their poo schedule, actually. <laughs> it might sound a little bit funny, but, you know, like I don't want to leave them with their poo. And so I'm like, oh, you haven't done your poo yet. So I'm going to, you know, watch you. And in fact, there was this, there's this one occasion where we recently had a venomous snake handling course. We were training Sea SeaWorld staff. And we were taking a death adder and I told my husband, I was like, Ooh, that one hasn't had a poo yet. It's probably going to drop when we're doing the course. So let, let's bring a spare bag, you know? He's like, Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that, that's handy to know. Interesting. You know that. And, and sure enough, during the course, she dropped a big load on the carpet. Oh, like, and death adders, they hold on to their poo for a long time. Probably this like, you know, chemical crypsis sort of thing. They don't want to draw predators to them. And so they like shed and poo at the same time. And so they hold on to their poo for like this really long time. Like it could be up to a month. And you see this big bulge at the bottom of, of this, of their body. And you're like, oh, come on. You're really holding on to that for a long time. Like, that looks uncomfortable. And she's being handled, you know, up and down and getting bagged. And, you know, and the students are, are learning how to bag a snake and, and and she just, you know, that movement of her body. And then it's just like, whoop, here it goes. Drop the load. <laughs> and we were being filmed by Channel 7 as well that day. So see if that's on telly later. I know that in your work in the in the Venom Lab, you're looking at not just how to administer antivenoms to, to humans, but also other medical uses that snake venom can be put to. Give me a sense of the medical applications of these incredible chemical cocktails that are found in snake venom. Venom is this fascinating subject and it it's really can be extremely helpful to humans counterintuitively, you know, so they've evolved for tens of millions of years, right? And so they have this very specific target. And if you think about drugs, you want them to target one part of your body and not have side effects, right? And so it's actually a really good opportunity. Like, you know, if you think of the venom gland as like this mini drug library of these potential life-saving drug compounds in their venom gland waiting to be discovered. And and we have several cases, there's, there's six already on the global market today, there's therapeutic drugs that were derived from snake venom toxins. So it's not just some, you know, pie in the sky idea. It's actually already happening. For what kind of conditions are they using snake venom derived so, drugs? Yeah, the, the most commonly used one, the most successful drug to date is called captopril. And it actually opened up a whole new class of drugs and that lowers blood pressure. And that's really handy for people who have high blood pressure, which can over time lead to heart disease, which is the number one killer of people around the world. So uh, that snake venom, it was from uh, Bothrops jarrachas, the snake. It's a pit viper in South America. And scientists had seen that in uh, rats that were envenomated by this species, it dropped their blood pressure heaps. But 
you know, that could be handy, you know, in a scenario where we want to drop our own blood pressure. And so you're able to learn the process of actually chemically what happens in the body. And then if you could just use it in small enough doses and being able to synthesize it, find a way to synthesize it so you're not constantly having to extract it from venoms, that could be helpful. And, and there's other, you know, p- pain medications, for instance, from cone snail toxins, anticoagulants from leeches, and yeah, even our own eastern brown snake, there's a toxin from, from that species that's currently uh, being, it's been patented and it, it's being tested for its ability to stop blood flow from people undergoing trauma surgery. And if these people are on anticoagulants and you need something that'll just still keep clotting, well, that's the eastern brown snake. Christina, what an amazing world you've introduced us to. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dr. Christina Zdenek was my guest on Conversations today. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Jonathan Green and I'm in Paris with a burning question. Taxi! How many Parisians live within five minutes of a bakery? Oh, really? Well, that's extraordinary. Thanks. This and other secrets of the world revealed in a new season of Return Ticket, the travel podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind. In this new season, we're off to Paris, Venice, Kuala Lumpur, Las Vegas and Timbuktu. Yes, that's right, Timbuktu. Where even is that? Return ticket. Subscribe on the ABC Listen app.